Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight, part three of my discussion with Jonathan Streeter about Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy titled, A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense. But before I get to that, let me first note that today is Monday, May 18th, 2020. This is the beginning of the ninth week of Radio Free Mormon's extraordinary exercise of trying to put up, and indeed so far putting up, a new podcast every weekday to try and help my listeners who are sheltering at home during the midst of this worldwide coronavirus pandemic. As restrictions begin to ease in this coronavirus pandemic and work begins to pick up here at the office, I will of necessity have to stop producing a new podcast every weekday and go back to my regular pattern of producing one a week, or maybe even one every two weeks if things get busy here at the office. My goal is to put up a new podcast every weekday of this, the ninth week. But after that point, I may have to ease off somewhat in the production rate. I have had a great time putting up a podcast every week for the past two months, and I hope that you've enjoyed the episodes I've managed to produce during that time. I have certainly been working under pressure, and sometimes when you work under pressure, things can be really good. Other times, they can be really bad. I hope that on the whole, my podcasts have been on the good side. I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in. I want to thank especially those of you who have gone to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and made a donation. I encourage all of my listeners to do that. One of my listeners sent me a message seeming to apologize for only being able to contribute $5 or $10 a month. Let me tell you, that is perfect. There is no need to apologize, believe me. When I say whatever you can contribute, I mean whatever you can contribute. So here we go with the third and final installment of A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense. Play the tape. All right, you want to continue polygamy and Nauvoo? I am going to try and do this. Yes, I can. Polygamy and Nauvoo was a harrowing ordeal, especially for those women who risked their reputation, stability, and future in order to secretly enter the secretive plural unions. That's two uses of secretly in the same sentence. I think that might be redundant. Just a note to President, uh, to Professor Parks, to secretly enter these secretive plural unions. It must have seemed impossible to find a sense of strength. To a large extent, they lacked both power and control over their own lives. Boy, you can say that again. Sarah Ann Whitney's blessing document, however, represents the type of assurance they fought for in return. Um, I'm not sure that you can extrapolate what Sarah did to the other plural wives. Maybe he has evidence for that, that they also fought for that type of uh, assurance in return for marrying Joseph Smith. Sarah made sure she had a receipt for her sacrifice. As such, her blessing is a document imbued with the deep tensions that pervaded the culture in which it was constructed. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that I think like many women in her situation, she was still under the care and guardianship of her parents, her father. And he was a businessman by trade. And he understood receipts and contracts and exchanges and documentation. And reading through this narrative, I just see him every step of the way saying, get it in writing, get it in writing. You know, and and himself feeling that that was important, despite Joseph instructing him to burn the letter, it was not burnt, it was preserved, it was a record, it was documentation. And and so I see that thread through all of this. Right, and at what point was it in Sarah's life that she could, that she would stop being able to depend upon her father for her support? I'm guessing it's when she turned 18. And when did she get this second blessing from Joseph Smith? Yeah. The day after, is that correct? The, the very next day. The very yeah. next day, yeah. Yeah, so now she's got to depend on someone other than her dad. Joseph, it's you, and you're going to have to prove it. Yeah. All right. Well, so <clears throat> now let's step back now and think about this order of events because we've got to talk about what is the definition of polyandry. And when people usually criticize... Joseph for polyandry, they're talking about a situation in which Joseph meets a woman who has previously been civilly married, and he enters into a marriage with them. And there's no divorce, there's no removal from that prior relationship, there's just a new relationship now. Um, And this question then of polyandry comes up with 
critics saying that Joseph Smith was marrying other men's wives or men, women who were married to other people and boinking them on the side, and then they'd go back and live with their husbands. So now we've entered the distinction between polyandry and sexual polyandry. Just like you can see uh, the relationship that was a pretend marriage between Kingsbury and Sarah Ann Whitney didn't have sexuality as a component of it. So was it really a marriage? I don't know. But, um, <clears throat> well, what is no, your, I would say absolutely ahead. it was absolutely it was, it was, there's a certificate of marriage. There's a document signed by a person with the authority, i.e. Joseph Smith. Of course, it's a marriage. The legality of a marriage doesn't depend upon whether it's actually consummated, but you can divorce for non-consummation, right? Well, I'm not an expert on the law back then, but today you can get divorced for any reason. You don't even have to okay. set forth the reasons. You just have to allege that the marriage is irretrievably broken. Okay. Well, the so we've got this conundrum in that uh, the Bible says that polyandry is a no-go. Joseph Smith said that polyandry was a no-go at some point. And yet we have these documents that seem to imply that in instances such as uh, Miranda Hyde, um, uh, Sylvia Lyons, you know, there's like 14 different examples where Joseph Smith is marrying a woman who was already um, civilly married to another man. And so there's a whole host of rationalizations and explanations. And I think Brian Hales is the guy who has really stuck his neck out more than anybody else in trying to provide what he sees as clarity to this situation. And there are a number of different explanations that he provides. And it's interesting to look at those explanations and then compare them to this unique story because this story is another example of polyandry it's just that the because polyandry is from the perspective of the woman the woman is marrying multiple men simultaneously and so the first explanation that you'll get from Joseph, from Brian Hales is that Joseph number 1 never engaged in sexual polyandry and he's got to make that distinction between polyandry in general and sexual polyandry because his standard for determining whether something was sexual polyandry was that there has to be unambiguous evidence of sex in a polyandrous union. And so setting the bar that high, since nobody came out and wrote in the newspaper article or in their journal, yeah, I really boinked that chica and it was, you know, it was great. Since nobody, there's no unambiguous evidence and there's no children, which would be another category of unambiguous evidence, then we can disregard that. So there's no sexual polyandry. And he enforces that um, notion by saying Joseph taught against it. If Joseph had done it, it would have been adultery. He makes all those, um, you know, strengths of his argument. Then the next thing he says is, and this is the next major category, is that... Can, can I stop you for just a second? Yeah, please do. Okay, do you know a married couple who doesn't have children? Yeah, there's plenty. Okay, prove that they have sex. Well, I mean, it's just kind of assumed that in a, that th those rights. And, I don't. I can't. I could of course you can't. That's what, their... that's what this argument is totally based upon. Unless you, there is actually children, you can't prove that they had sex. They could be having sex every morning, noon, and night, twenty four seven. But as long as they don't have children, and as long as you are not there to witness it, you can't prove that they have sex. It's a ridiculous argument, but it's meant to be an argument that's going to support his theory, regardless of how ridiculous it is. Uh, that's just my opinion. Yeah, and the people will go on to say Joseph was very fertile. I mean, he barely sneezed at Emma, and Emma got pregnant. You know, the kid inevitably died, but, you know, that, that's how it works. Well, the counter-argument to that is, well, John C. Bennett, everybody in the church agrees, was a scoundrel. He was a hound. He was, you know, going after all these women. Where are his children? Well, he didn't have any children from those adulterous uh, relationships or spiritual wifery relationships. So if, jo if John C. Bennett is capable of doing this, then there's no reason to say that Joseph Smith would be capable of having sexual r relations without progeny being produced. Can I tell you a little funny story about that? Yeah. It has to do with um, – what does it have to do? I guess it has to do with uh, – uh, what do you call it when you have sex but you take measures not to have kids? Contraception. Ah, thank you. That's it. It has slipped my mind. Um, I remember that um, uh, back in the 1990s and I was going through my first divorce and I was really a mess. And I was talking to my mom on the phone 
and uh, long distance. She's in Texas. She lived down there in Austin, not too far from you, I think. And she, um, she finally makes this disclosure to me. Okay. I had, you know, as far as I know, it's my mom and my dad. They got married. They had kids. Wonderful. And because I'm one of them. And, <laughs> but she makes this disclosure to me because I'm in a situation. She says, you know, um, I never told you this, but I was married before your dad. Your dad is really what? my se- Yeah. Your dad is really my second marriage. I was married to this other guy who I, I knew in high school uh, out by Abilene, Texas, back in the you were adult. 19- you were an adult when you found that out? Yeah. I'm 34, 35 years old. And wow. so, and so uh, she said, yeah, but he was, he was abusive. I ended up getting divorced from him. I found your dad. And I had to ask her the natural follow-up question. You know what that was, right? I said, well, do I have any like brothers or sisters running around that I don't know about? And she says to me, she says, uh, well, no, uh, we took steps not to have kids. And I said, what? Are you talking about contraception? And, she's, and she says, look, it's not like it was the dark ages. <laughs> we have this idea that like we're the only generation that has this idea of contraception, right? And you go back in time, they, they had no clue, right? They yeah. had a clue. There were ways to uh, safeguard, not, not perfect. Our ways aren't perfect either, by the way, but to safeguard against having children, even though you're engaging in sex. And I think it's probably the, what is it called? That historical problem of modernism, judging presentism, presentism. Thank you. Presentism yeah. by judging the past, you know, or actually that's judging the past as the present. This is saying the, other, this is the other, the reverse, right? Saying, Oh, we, we know how to do things today, but anybody in the past, they had no clue. Yeah, they had a clue. And so yeah. I think that um, the idea comes back, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm babbling a bit now. I'm reliving this, uh, this traumatic incident in my life when my mom told me about her first husband, is that um, you don't, this it gets back to this, you don't have to marry somebody to not have sex with them. All right? Yeah. You don't have to marry somebody to not have sex with them. And so what, what Brian Hales, I think, or people who use this argument are doing is turning the, pr- the burden of proof on its head. All right. Yeah. The natural presumption is if you're going to marry somebody, you're going to be having sex. I mean, that is why the marriage institution is there is to provide a legal framework for having sex and having children and having families. It's a legal contract. That's why the government is involved in it. But uh, he I think. And and on top of that, like, you know, Brian Hales has a video recently where he says, you know, critics are just going to say it was all about sex. And I just want to make it clear. I'm not saying that the only reason Joseph Smith went into these marriages and the only reason he provided was sex. I will just say that one of the compelling motives that anybody who's in that position that drives them is sexual and then they will use other reasons in order to obtain that aspect of their gratification. No, you're and so right. If to the to the point that he added uh, you know, s- ceilings and dynasties and the eternities and the purposes of God and righteousness and you know, he could adorn the argument and favor of these marriages with all of these things. And we'll say, yeah, he totally did. And to the receiver, to the person who was asked to enter into these unorthodox relationships, those were very meaningful. But if we're being honest, the thing that was driving him was his conjugal experiences with these women, because we don't see him connecting with them in the broad depth of a real relationship that any other couple would actually experience. Right. I agree with you. And to the extent that Brian Hales or anybody else is saying, oh, some critics say it's all about sex, right? Well, maybe Mm -hmm. some critics do say that. But what I see that as, that's a straw man argument. Because really, your position is what I would encounter, what I would agree with more. Uh, Sex was a component of it. It may not have been the only component, but it was definitely a component of it. But what I hear Brian Hales saying is when he says, oh, the critics say it was all about sex, is to use that as a way of not dealing with the fact that sex was a component of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, on this notion, people say, well, he married 50-year-olds. And so it clearly wasn't about sex and attraction. I mean, you've seen the pictures of them old old biddies from Nauvoo. And you just have to remember that 
in some instances, I think particularly when you're talking about young nubile women, then I think there's more of an argument to be made for a mutual attraction, sexual attraction component of it. But there are also um, control, authority, power, and persuasion elements that can go into a relationship. And if you want to see examples of this, study the early history of Vernon Howell, later David Koresh, and see how he went into an existing congregation that had kind of a woman spiritual leader, and he ingratiated himself with her, which included sexual relations. And that that relationship with an older woman when he was a young man was something that put positioned him in a way so that he could capture the attention and the focus of the group as she fell out of power and he took over. And so, you know, if you only want to see through the lens of Joseph was prophet, he was righteous, everything he did was commanded and approved of by God, then you're only going to see one thing. But if you step back and you say, wait a second, what are some of the other motives that we know drive people who are uh, religious, they are uh, able to persuade people to to come and gather around them, they're able to curry favor and influence with people, these charismatic men, what are some of the other motives and things that they do in other contexts, and can we then see some of what Joseph is doing through that same lens? And when you look at it that way, you, you lose this whole righteous prophet narrative because what he does is so stereotypical with some of those other people. Yeah, and I'm not the smartest guy around, Jonathan, but if I'm Joseph Smith and I've got this position and I'm using it to marry young girls, teenagers, 20-year-olds, and I'm saying I have this whole construct, right, that this is part of eternal ceilings and so this eternal marriage thing, of course I'm going to marry some older women too. That's my cover, just like this fake sham marriage was between Kingsbury and Sarah. He engages in maneuvers to cover up what he's really doing. I think that's the significance of this document that we know that about Joseph Smith. I'm not saying this is definitely why he did it, but I can certainly envision that if I'm after young girls in a religious sense, sure, I'm going to throw in some old ones. They're my beards. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I understand what you're talking about right there, but it's, it all goes down to the root of all of this is deception. And so that is the thing. We, as as members of the church, if you're there, you are asked by these defenders to accept the idea that the prophet can deceive the public, members and non-members alike, in order to engage in secret practices which go contrary to their public pronouncements uh, and do so with righteous purposes. And that's just a terrible, dangerous precedent. But that's behind this notion that... Um, you know, that the, the we can excuse Joseph for these things. Um, the argument being next in the category when we talk about these things is that when Joseph Smith took on a plural wife that was already civilly married, well, that new and everlasting covenant totally nullifies any prior covenant that person had. And so it's not polyandry, it's serial polygamy, serial marriages. And so, in that case, even if we find that there's significant evidence of a sexual relationship between uh, Joseph and a woman who previously was civilly married, does not have any form of divorce, and enters into a relationship with Joseph, jo uh, Brian Hales can exclude that from his statement that Joseph did not practice sexual polygamy because that was not, or sexual polyandry, because that was not polyandry, that was serial polygamy. And that is, I think, where we're going to come into some some difficulties when we when we examine this. So, with that question in mind, I I asked Brian Hales. Okay, Brian, does this mean that when Joseph Smith was sealed to Louisa Beeman, that Joseph's prior civil marriage to Emma Smith was nullified because he was now entering into the new and everlasting covenant? He was previously civilly married, and, and now, according to your explanation, the New and Everlasting Covenant nullifies prior civil marriages. Like, how, how would you think he would respond to that? Oh, me? I'm sorry, you're actually asking me that? Yeah, I'm asking you, yeah. Uh, I Well, we did talk about this before yesterday, but I think I didn't pay enough attention. Oh, that's how I, I didn't expect a pop quiz. But You're just like my audience. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell me? Can you tell me? No, that's okay. So, I, I mean, well, I was, I was like, I, I wanted to know how he explains it because um, it seems like an inconsistency, but I thought it might actually provide a solution because that would mean then that it was actually Louisa Beeman who he would need to ask 
permission to marry any of the subsequent plural wives because that would then be his first wife if the Emma Smith thing was done away with. And then when Emma Smith later gets sealed to Joseph, then she doesn't really have to be informed of anyone because she's technically not the first sealed wife. There's a way to explain that, but they didn't want to go for that. So um, what Brian Hale said was, no, 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 no. You have to remember polygamy is not fair. It's inherently sexist. Um, women are held to a different standard than men. And so even though if it was a woman who was previously sealed, entering into the new and everlasting covenant, her prior civil marriage would be nullified just by the act of being married to Joseph. There's probably a legal term for that. I don't know what it is. Um, but for a man, it does not nullify that. And then the precedent well, he brought I, out was... Annulment? Go ahead. You said nullified. Do you mean annulment? No, just like by the act of the new sealing... Right. Then the other Previous one is gone away. Yeah. 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 Um, but we know that Abraham was married to Hagar and his first marriage was not nullified and, and Jacob. And so we've got biblical precedent. And so we're okay with it. Um, that was his explanation. So we're acknowledging that uh, polygamy is sexist and that there's different standards for men and women, but it preserves Joseph Smith then. Um and there's, you know, you have to say, okay, well, if that's the case, are we going to then excuse everything that Abraham did? Uh, he owned slaves. Uh, we have, you know, Moses conducting genocide. There's all sorts of counter arguments that you can make for this, but that is the argument that they want to have take root in the minds of the followers because they're not going to ask any of those follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. So, so then we get to this example. Oh, which can I just, is can I say one yeah. thing about that? Um, all right. If I'm understanding your recitation of Brian Hale's argument correctly, that when Joseph Smith practices plural marriage, first off, there's two categories. There's women who are not married to other men, and there are women who are married to other men. For When he marries the women who are not married to other men, that's fine. That's okay. It doesn't make any difference regardless of whether they're 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. That's all fine according to to Brian Hales. It's only when he marries a woman who is already married civilly and legally to another man. That's where his argument focuses and that when Joseph Smith marries a woman who's already married to somebody else, that his marriage, Joseph's marriage to them immediately and simultaneously annuls her civil marriage so that actually all he's doing is marrying women who are not married to other men, regardless of whether they are married to other men or not in the eyes of the law, but it's just serial polygamy with unmarried mm -hmm. women. Is that basically the argument? Yeah, yeah. It's that it's it's almost like it's it contains its own exclusion clause. As soon as you marry into Joseph, you're by definition no longer married to anyone else. Okay. Well, at least I understand the argument correctly. Um, I think that that is, I mean, it's another thing. I mean, a lot of people have that first name, right? The one that's written in the Sharpie on the magazine of the gun. Yeah. This is so extreme. This is so out there that you would have to be totally in the tank to buy off on this. The thing I find more interesting is why is it so important to Brian Hales to justify Joseph Smith for against the charge that he married women who were already married by this crazy theory of his. I'm sorry to call it crazy, but it strikes me as extremely unlikely. Um, this theological theory of his, but he's okay with him marrying 14 and 15 year olds. He's, he's okay with him marrying 33 women. It's just like, this is the one thing that he wants to defend about Joseph Smith while meanwhile accepting all these other morally reprehensible things that Joseph did. Yeah. And you're speaking to, I think, why there's such a focus on sex. Because if we can say, okay, marriage, sealing, they're different things, and then there's the time and the eternity, whatever, all we need to do is we need to make sure that Joseph did not have sex with anyone who was a child or who was civilly married to somebody else and also sealed for time and eternity. And this is where Brian has this tendency to bring up examples and give you the exception to his example or to ignore exceptions and still hold to his position as though it is a hard and fast rule. So one of the examples that we have is in the case of Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner. Now, she was married to somebody else and then subsequently sealed to Joseph. 
Now, one of the arguments Hales puts out is that when Joseph is sealed in Nauvoo, he's sealed sometimes for eternity only and sometimes for time and eternity. And so any woman like Elizabeth Mary Rollins Leitner, who was previously married, who gets married to Joseph, that was only for eternity. There was no time component of it. And then what he'll do is he'll dig up an article or a quote where the person involved says that they were married for eternity. They don't say only eternity, they just say eternity. And then he'll use that as the proof that the marriage was only for eternity. And and Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner is one of those people. And if you're not familiar with her case, Joseph went to stay a little bit with their family. She was like 12 years old at the time. Later, he told her in his courtship of her that back then when she was really, really young, uh, an angel of the Lord told Joseph that she was to be hers as to be his as a bride, and it's been decreed from before the foundations of the world. And so I'm going to share now on the screen, this is a bit of her writing about it herself. The angel told him I should have a witness, and an angel came to me. It went through me like lightning. I was afraid. Joseph said he came and more revelation came with more revelation and knowledge. Then Joseph ever dare reveal Brigham Young sealed him to me for time and all eternity. That was on February of 1842. Joseph said I was his before I came here. He said all the devils in in hell should never get him from me, get me from him. I was sealed to him in the Masonic Hall uh, over the brick store by Brigham Young in February of 1842, and then again in the Nauvoo Temple by Heber C. Kimball. Okay, so we've got this, the woman in her own handwriting talking about two different times she was sealed. The first time by Brigham Young in the Masonic Hall, uh, time and eternity. We've got the, the, the actual person involved saying time and eternity, and then acknowledging that there was later a sealing um, in the Nauvoo Temple by Heber Kimpo after the death of Joseph Smith. And this was, you know, because the temple had now been built, they wanted to redo everything, right? So despite this, Hales will still use Rollins Leitner and his excuse is, well, people probably get mistaken because there were two ceilings and she probably messed up uh, the time and eternity part. Because there's another time where she says eternity. So we've got now, not only are we excluding any example that would break his rule, we're just going to totally ignore and we're going to trust his opinion and his conjecture above the first person written statements of those people who were actually involved. Because this statement here, time and all eternity, completely blows um, Brian Hale's position out of the water because his position is that Joseph Smith was never sealed for time to any of these women who were already married to other people if they were, you know, righteous church leader uh church members does that make sense oh yeah just like the famous uh sorry sherlock holmes quote right it is a capital mistake to begin to theorize before one has all the facts insensibly one begins to twist the facts to fit the theory instead Mm -hmm. of the theory to fit the facts so here's the deal this is my impression okay Brian Hales or other people like him have created a theory, right? And it is this overarching way of of which they believe that polygamy was practiced, whether it's the polyandry and how that's justified, whether it's the kids and not having sex with them, whether it's the time and the eternity and the time versus the eternity, whatever. And that there is this overarching system that is complete, it is set, it is full of rules, and that every time Joseph Smith practiced polygamy or we've got uh, documents, they have to fit into that paradigm that Brian Hales has created. And it's sort of a Procrustean bed, you know, if it's too long, you cut off pieces, if it's too short, you stretch it out to make it fit. Mm -hmm. The problem that I see is, is that I think that historically speaking, what's really going on here is we are seeing a practice of polygamy practice of polygamy by Joseph Smith, okay, that is not according to any set system. It is a mess. He's doing things right. He's doing things left. He's doing things up. He's doing things down. And I'm just talking about the ordinances themselves and the way that they are being constructed, the words being used. There is no system to what he's doing. 
any system that we see that's set out is in Doctrine and Covenants 132, and he is definitely not going by that system yeah. that's set out in the Revelation, right? He's just making it up as he goes along. So I would look at what Joseph Smith is doing and not try and say there's some universal set of rules that he's following. And so I've got to interpret the facts to fit those rules that I've made up in my head and that I think Joseph Smith is following. I think it's a mess. Joseph Smith doesn't know what he's doing from one time to the next. There's no overarching scheme. There's no overarching doctrine that he's following. He's just making it up as he goes along. And when I look at the evidence through that lens, all of a sudden it makes complete sense. I can Mm -hmm. fit every piece of evidence comfortably into that scenario. Yeah, and Joseph even provides a quote which justifies that, which is that the the children of God are to live by commandment and revelation adapted to their particular circumstances. And that's exactly what Joseph does. Any circumstance that he's in, he is empowered to bring out a commandment or revelation which would fix whatever conundrum he's in, so long as the people around him are subject to his prophetic authority and, and believe him to have that. Right. And if, by the way, I think that's a great quote. Uh, if Brian Hales is correct, and this is really what's going on with Joseph Smith, and he's telling women who are married to other men, go ahead and marry me, because as soon as you marry me by the new and everlasting covenant, then it gets rid of your relationship with your husband. What has he just done to those women? First off, he's obviously using this, if he's doing this, and Brian Hales is correct, he's using this as an incentive to get these women to marry him, right? Because now you're not going to be married. You're not going to be committing bigamy. You're just going to be marrying me. You're not married to your husband. But what happens with those women? They go back. They don't live with Joseph Smith. They live with their husbands. They continue to have sex with their husbands, their legal husbands. What does he make out of those women if he says that now you're not married to your first husband? Well, he has just made all of them adulteresses. That's the logical conclusion that I see to Brian Hale's argument if he's correct about this whole thing. Well, yeah, and that is the case that he suggested is one of the explanations for the the timeline of Sylvia Session Lyons, who goes back and has another child after her sealing to Joseph Smith, is that if she was sealed for time and eternity to Joseph and she went back to live with her prior husband and did not get it remarried, then it means that she probably broke her covenants and committed adultery. That but we never, bastard. yeah, we never apply that to Joseph. I was talking Only about her kid, not Brian Hales, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, every, everybody can be sacrificed. You're right. Everybody can get thrown under the bus if the goal is to preserve the image of Joseph Smith as righteous. Everybody else gets thrown under the bus. Yeah. And so it's in this discussion where I'm asking Brian Hales about this, and he provides this explanation. Um. <clears throat> And I, I bring up, uh, uh, you know, this other thing, you know, so I said, Brian Hales has acknowledged that uh, the Sarah Ann Whitney is another instance of a woman marrying someone who's already married, but all the other examples are civil marriages, which are essentially nullified when a woman enters into the new and everlasting covenant, according to Doctrine and Covenants section 22, that's where he gets that. How does this example of a civil marriage following a temporal and eternal ceiling, a ceiling for time and eternity fit into this whole paradigm. A civil marriage does not nullify a prior eternal covenant, I assume. Um, It wasn't intended to be a normal marriage in that it was described by everyone as pretend. We're talking about Sarah and and Joseph um, Kingsley's marriage. And it seems from Kingsley's own recollection that he felt that his marriage to Sarah was pretend, even after Joseph's death. Um, And it was the only marriage though, that is of this polyandry category where there's a record of it on the, the record books. If we allow that Joseph practice polyandry, can is this just another example of polyandry? But if Joseph did not engage in or condone polyandry, then this stands out as a problem. Um, Hales responded and said, you're misrepresenting my, my presentation um, or my position. I would encourage you to seek transparency. And I said, I, well, I hope it's not I I didn't mean it intentionally. You had said previously that Joseph Smith was not sealed to legally married women except for Sarah Ann Whitney for time and eternity, just for eternity, so the marriages were consecutive. I must have misunderstood you. What did you have? And this is is kind of the response that um, starts the key point I want to make with this entire discussion. So Brian says, I'm sorry if I was less clear. Sarah Ann was sealed to Joseph Smith for time and eternity. She was married in a pretend legal marriage to Kingsbury, 
Both of them agree it was never consummated. So she is the one exception of a legally married woman who was sealed to Joseph Smith for time and eternity rather than just eternity only. Uh, Mark Hart, Michael Mark Hart was the first to write about this. And so I asked him the question, okay, would you say that the marriage between Kingsbury and Sarah Ann Whitney was legal and lawful? And the response was, it was defined, this is Brian Hale speaking, it was designed to deflect suspicion away from her sealing to Joseph Smith as a plural wife. It complied with the laws of the state of Illinois. Illinois. Lawful is an ambiguous term unless we determine whose laws we are referencing. Her sealing complied with God's laws, but God's laws would not allow polyandry. So, we've now entered the realm of probably one of the things that America as a society has feared more than anything else in the conflict between religion and society, and that is allowing religions to hold the notion that there is God's law and men's law, and God's law can supersede man's law at any point that a uh, religious figure needs them to be. And I see that as a a big danger, dangerous zone, but it, it brings us back to this question of what is the difference between legal and lawful? And that's why I called you RFM. I'm like, what does the attorney attorney have to say? What is the difference between legal and lawful? Because we just that just rolls off your tongue. Because we hear it in the temple all the time to who you are legally and lawfully wed. That's like part of the law of chastity. Only sexual relations between a husband and wife to who are legally and lawfully wed. What is the difference between legal and lawful? From my point of view, and I know you asked me this yesterday, There is no difference. Legal means lawful. Lawful means legal. If something's legal, it's permitted by the law. If something's lawful, well, it's because it's permitted by the law. Okay. I have never heard of a distinction made in my 30 years of practice between legal and lawful. Maybe there's a technical difference. I don't know. All I know is that it's not something that comes up, at least not in my 30 years of practice. To me, it's just an example of the lawyer's malady of using duplicative words, multiple words and phrases that mean the same thing in order to give it a patina of authority. Well, I can respect that. And I understand that there's uh, a reason for that. You know, as a writer, I'm not very good at being concise, but when I'm bundling two words together like this as qualifiers for something, I feel like there needs to be a distinction between one. And so I did some Googling and I found... Um, you know, like many words, there could be multiple definitions. And so I think one of the definitions of, of legal follows your uh, statement here. But there's another definition which, which implies that the difference between legal and lawful is that if something is legal, then it, it follows a previously prescribed form for some legal, um, some exercise related to the law. And so in marriage, we would say something is legal if they filed the appropriate uh, forms on file with the county register that anything that is required in order for a marriage to be um, considered legal. And then lawful is something that has, it's a more general statement about basically whether something is permitted by the law. You know, if something is illegal, then it cannot be lawful. But you can have something called legal fraud where people file the appropriate forms or follow the appropriate procedure, but they do so out of good faith um, in a deceptive or fraudulent way. And so that's a legal fraud. So when I look at this, the history of marriage and why there would need to be a distinction between legal and lawful based on that definition... I think that there's a, there's a core fundamental reason that we're using that when we look back through the lens of history in Joseph's marriage, because his marriages to his polygamous brides, by looking at these terms as different in the way that I've described, are they legal and lawful? Well, oh, I'm sorry. I, what is your take on it, if you understand what I mean by those differences? My take on it is that the only reason that you called me and wanted me on your program was to talk about the difference between two terms, and I totally blew it. <laughs> no, that's okay. You blew it when we, when we first talked as well, but you're so delightful to talk to you, I figured I'd have you on anyway. You're too kind, but let me say something about the way Brian Hales is using it, because I don't see Brian Hales, and I do have a copy of his text that you read in front of me, although your audience does not. He's not making that distinction. 
what he's saying is he's making a distinction between lawful and lawful. He's saying something can be lawful under God's law, but not lawful under the government's law. And that's where he yeah. says it was designed that marriage, the fake marriage, it was designed to deflect suspicion away from her ceiling to Joseph Smith as a plural wife. It complied with the laws of the state of Illinois. Lawful is an ambiguous term unless we determine whose laws we are referencing. Here is the big dodge that he's using, right? This is a shifting mm -hmm. of definitions. It's a common uh, tactic that's used in order to what? Try and fool the people you're talking to, basically. Her ceiling complied with God's laws, but God's laws would not allow polyandry, okay? So this is a polyandrous relationship. He recognizes that. He's stuck. You've got him in a corner. His only way to get out is to try and say, hey, it was lawful under God's law, but not lawful under the laws of the state of Illinois. Therefore, that's my get out of jail free card. I'm just going to change the definition to something that you cannot prove wrong. I mean, how can you prove that something's not God's law? It's pretty hard to do. And yet he seems to feel fine by pronouncing. I mean, is this guy a prophet or not? He says God's law would not allow polyandry. Where does he get that from, Jonathan? Do you know? Yeah, he he takes pretty strong. Part of his argument is that there are biblical references, both in um, uh, like New Testament and Old Testament, which would restrict a woman from marrying and engaging sexually with two men at the same time. And so he'll he'll take scriptural reference from that. Then he'll say that Joseph preached on this subject and specifically said it was not allowed. And then uh. he'll say in DNC one thirty two, it specifically draws an exclusion and a line that a woman cannot be. Uh, oath-bound to more than one man. Okay, so just very briefly, not to address all those points, but yeah, DNC 132 says a lot of things that Joseph Smith didn't follow, okay? Yeah. You know that, right? So it's oh, hard yeah. to take a list of 10 things that Joseph Smith isn't following in DNC 132 when he's practicing plural marriage in reality, and then point to one and say, oh, well, Joseph Smith wouldn't have done this because DNC says this is the way you're supposed to practice plural marriage when you're not talking about the nine other things in Doctrine and Covenants 132 that Joseph Smith is not yeah. following. That seems a bad argument. The second thing is that here we've got Brian Hales. Uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this pod. You're not listening, are you, Brian? Okay, I hope not. <laughs> he's got better, He's got better, more lucrative, billable things he can do. I'll bet. He's an anesthesiologist, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. boy, he's rolling in it. Anyway, so Brian Hales also says that he acknowledges that this is a sham marriage, right? That Joseph Smith is performing this sham marriage between, what's his name, Kingsbury and yes. Sarah Whitney in order to throw off suspicion of the fact that Joseph Smith is really married to Sarah. So he's already acknowledged that Joseph Smith is willing to engage in deceptive acts. That's a deceptive act. Yeah. I mean, can we agree on that? That's not really controversial, yeah. is it? It's an act intent, no. intended to deceive the public and intended to deceive others. So he's going to say, yeah, Joseph Smith will engage in deceptive sham marriages with people in order to hide his polygamy. But he's going. But in every other instance, he's going to tell the truth about it. So whenever he's talking to the public and recorded about polygamy, he's telling the truth. We're going to take the word of a guy who he's already acknowledged is going to engage in a deceptive act of a sham marriage to cover his polygamy. That doesn't seem to be logically consistent to me. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing I was just going to say, and by the way, I've got to go here in just a second. It's 954. That's okay. He also says in that first thing, he says, um, he, he acknowledges the situation. And this is a thorny predicament for him, uh, this marriage, right, with Sarah and Kingsbury. So she, Sarah, is the one exception of a legally married woman who was sealed to Joseph Smith for time and eternity, rather than just for eternity only. She's the one exception, okay? That blows apart his entire argument. He doesn't seem to recognize this. Let me explain it to you, Brian, if you're listening. If you have an exception to your argument, that means that your argument is destroyed unless you can adequately show that it's not an exception. You've heard the expression, right, Jonathan? That's the exception that proves the rule? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in common parlance, we think, oh, if you've got an exception to a rule, then that proves that the rule must be true. And eh, no, that's not what it means. If you've got a rule, a rule means that it's always followed. That's what makes it a rule, right? If you've got mm -hmm. an exception to your rule and you find out in your research that you've got an exception to your rule, then that means that your rule is wrong. It's like mm -hmm. the old version, uh, the Elizabethan version of uh, proving something, right? You've got, uh, what is it in Malachi? Uh, prove me now herewith. Prove, yes. Say the Lord of hosts. 
Yeah, he's not saying prove that I exist or prove anything. It's a test me. Test me. Prove means to test. And that's what it means in this old saying. The exception tests the rule. And it shows that the rule is incorrect. And what I see Brian Hales doing, and so many apologists, I did it for myself for crying out loud for many years, is that we take the um, we take our rule. We've already created our rule. That's the construct that I'm talking about. Brian Hales already has this rule in mind that he has created. And now he is going to take exceptions to that rule and things that test it. And he's going to carve it this way and carve it that way and ignore stuff and add stuff over here in order to make all these things that don't fit his rule or his paradigm, make them fit so that his paradigm will be correct. I see it as the tail wagging the dog. He's acting more as an apologist than he is as a historian. Yeah. No, very good points. Um, <clears throat> the the thing about Hale's whole argument here, he's trying to, and, and his response, I think, to your challenge to him would be, well, uh, they didn't have sex. So it really wasn't a real marriage. It really wasn't a real marriage, if you think about it. Is that and, a challenge, Scar? <laughs> a little Lion King humor. Sorry. Yes. Um, well, they didn't have sex. Well, who says? Because that's the whole point, is they didn't have sex. Well, both of them admitted it was a pretend marriage. When I say they didn't have sex, I mean Kingsbury and Sarah Ann. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think they were getting a little on the side, though, don't you? Well, I, I don't know, because even later when when Sarah Ann was courted by, uh, was it Kimball? Um, she gave birth after they were married civilly, and uh, and I don't think Kingsbury, if you read his journal, he's maintaining that, you know, that she was basically with me, and it was a pretend thing, and he got his own wives that he was sealed to uh, polygamously. But that baby kind of looked like Kingsbury, if you look at the photos. No, no we didn't. Stop it. <laughs> I'm telling you, the eyes. It's the eyes. The Kingsbury. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the, the bottom line for it, though, is that, um, you know, we are asked to accept this notion that God's laws can supersede man's laws, even though the marriage between Sarah and, King, and Kingsley was the most legal and lawful marriage that Joseph Smith participated in with any of these brides other than Emma because it followed the forms of the law. It was on register with the courthouse. It was the only one that had that type of documentation. Um, and it was lawful only so long as you don't consider Sarah Ann to have previously been married because then she would be in violation of the bigamy statute. Right. And so, um, and, and that's, now let's look at all of Joseph Smith's other marriages. Were they legal? Well, they did not follow any civil uh, l precedent form or pattern for being married. There was no filing with the courthouse or anything like that. Were they lawful? Well, they flew in violation of the statute against uh, bigamy, which I think is 1831 or something like that. Uh, that's on the book. So they were neither legal nor lawful. And so from a civil perspective, those things can't be considered marriages. And what Joseph was engaging in was serial adultery using the ornamentation of religiosity. Yeah. But oh, sorry. if we allow God's laws to now overlay on top of man's laws, as long as you're conforming to God's laws, then it's not adultery. So were they? did, did God have a procedure... A, a, a legal thing you had to do in order to be married? Yes. Well, there's this ceremony, this ordinance. So it's lawful according to God's laws. Is it legal? Well, God's laws, as articulated by Joseph, allowed a man to marry multiple women. So it was both legal and lawful from divine law perspective. Now, that's great. We've excused and exonerated Joseph. That's just fantastic. But We've set a precedent. We've now said that a religious organization with a man claiming to speak for God can violate the laws of the land on the justification that God's laws are higher than and supersedes man's laws. If we allow that in marriage, maybe somebody's going to get, you know, a little bit of action on the side, whatever. But when that extends then to other things that the law would normally have a say in, violence, murder, um, extortion, you know, any other thing, what you've done is you've empowered these religious leaders to do anything so long as they can make the argument to themselves that it serves God's purposes, including the secrecy of the things that they are doing. And that is just a dangerous precedent. If you were to see that in any other religious paradigm, if we were to go to a Mormon and say, would you be okay with a, a Muslim cleric saying that they were going to secretly practice Sharia law here in America and they were going to do anything that they could justify on that grounds, they'd be like, hell no, we don't want that. That's, you know, 
that's that's there, there's a reason there's a separation between law uh, church and state and but if you say you know this is what the entire defense of Joseph lays down because when it comes down to it at the bottom level of all these apologetic arguments is this notion that Joseph Smith can articulate God's law and they supersede man's law and you have to be you have to accept that all right that's my spiel on it that to me that's kind of the worst offense at the root of all of these things any final words from you RFM or did you already leave did I lose you I put him to sleep all right well, uh, with him out of the picture where I can't hear him, then do we have the ability to open up the phone lines? Let me see if anyone is interested in calling RFM. If you get your sound back, then by all means do. I can hear, I know something's going on. He probably left to use the restroom. I'm sorry, were uh, you done? You were going off on a real tear there, and I thought it was a good time for me to go to the bathroom. I apologize. I, I, I called it. You did. No, that's absolutely. all right. <laughs> no, I just, I, my tear was basically just, you know, drilling down to this notion that we can allow religions to claim a secret private doctrine as God's law that supersedes and overrides man's law at any time that the religious leader says. And it's all well and good when you're talking about marriage, but w when you apply it and allow it, then you have to allow it for other things that, you know, you're allowing them to justify illegal acts on religious claims. And it's just a terrible precedent to set. You know, we don't want as a society to set that precedent because it empowers any other religious charlatan to use that same justification. No, absolutely. I was actually waiting for you to come to a pause so I could insert the line from History of the World Part Two. It's good to be the king. Yes. Because <laughs> you get to set the laws. And whatever you say is actually right. All right. Well, I know you got to go. Um, I usually try to do these things where I can open up the phone lines and invite some callers. So uh, I am going to see if I can get that working. It actually is the the problem we were having before the show started is only related to wanting the callers to be able to hear you talk. But let's go ahead and open up the phone lines. RFM, if you need to sign out to take care of your daily stuff, then feel free to do that. Thank um, you so actually, much for joining Actually, I kind me. of do. And since actually I cannot speak such that the callers will hear... Um, then I'll just go ahead, I'll bug out, and I'll let you answer for me. Jonathan, thank you so much for having okay. me on your show. It's been so wonderful. I'm a big fan of yours. Love what you do. Well, the feeling is very mutual, and I'm always glad to be able to hear from you and connect with you and talk about these things with you. And thank you for uh, being willing to be a guest here, and I'll send you those files as soon as we're done here. Thanks so much. Give some cuddles to Yugi for me, okay? All right. I think he laid some Tootsie Rolls here. <laughs> All right. I thought I was smelling something. See you later. Bye. <laughs> Take, take care. Bye. All right. So let me see if I can get these phone lines. If you would like to give us a little bit of your feedback, if you were able to hang in there. I know that these podcasts go long and put people to sleep. So I appreciate you uh, hanging in there. Let's see. we got about 64 people listening here. You can call if you're new to this coming from RFM's um, streams. You can call 210-422-2222 and we will see if we can get things set up. Um, let's see here. I have to be able to do this in a way that allows me to hear. Let's see. All you got to do is pick up your phone, go 210-422-2222, and you'll be able to give us a call. Um, and if we don't get any calls in the meantime, then I'll go ahead and log off. Uh, it's always, you know, interesting doing these things and uh, not knowing whether or not you're going to have enough participation to justify opening phone lines. Let's see what comments that we have. Uh, let's see here. A bunch of people why are wondering why we're starting too late. Um, we've got uh, Benjamin Kingsley asking, how do apologists explain away the guarantee of salvation for the whole family, as if that's not coercive. Do they just say it was Joseph's prophetic knowledge that if she married him, her family would end up staying true to the gospel? Kind of like when church leaders today tell parents that if they remain true, their wayward children will eventually come back. I think the 
the explanation that they give is just that he was the prophet. He had the power to bind and seal things on earth as in heaven. And if he sealed somebody up to this exaltation and salvation, then he had the spirit of discernment and judgment and knew that that they were worthy of that or that they would be. And Joseph taught that God's blessings were more liberal than people were bound to imagine. And so even though we may judge ourselves harshly, um, God is willing to be forgiving and willing to take people. And if you can do what Joseph says is a requirement in order to obtain that blessing, then all the more reason to do it. And I think we saw a good example of that in the Newell K. Whitney family and the story of Sarah and Whitney and um, how they consented to give their daughter to Joseph. And then later how Joseph Kingsbury uh, consented to enter into this sham pretend marriage. Okay, uh, Michael Scott says, note to self, don't write letters that need to be burned. Uh, yeah, and note to self, if you ever get a letter that says burn this letter, save that letter. That's one of the things that you know you're going to want to have. Um, <clears throat> Gimpy Geezer says he wants some relief. All right, ah, these jokes just write themselves. Um Philoserve says, is God a respecter of persons? Either God or Joseph is a blatant liar because God clearly respects those families that are in association with Joseph. What a racket, your daughter for salvation. And I think this is a perspective that, you know, if you were to go listen to any other religious leader, you know, some crazy guy calling himself a prophet out in the woods, he's an offshoot of the uh, Seventh-day Adventist church, and he's telling all of his followers that if you enter into this you know, polygamous marriage with me, then your entire family is going to be saved in heaven. We'd be like, that is totally, number one, he's making it up. Number two, he's just trying to get into their pants using their devotion to religion as a motive. And he's a complete charlatan and a sexual predator. There's no question about it. It's so obvious. But when you see your beloved prophet do the same thing, but with more flowery language and a hundred years ago, then we can excuse it. And that's just the same approach that you kind of have to take in order to be okay with these things. All right. Uh, <clears throat> let's see here. Stella Davis says, I'm pretty sure the church leaders continue to hide evidence. Case in point, Joseph Fielding Smith hiding away a page of Joseph Smith's diary, even the first vision account. I think historically you can't but acknowledge that the church was keeping from the public eye documents that would be embarrassing to its founder, to its uh, claims. We are in an era where there is certainly more transparency. We're seeing documents that were previously held. We have the Council of 50 Minutes that were held for over a century, even so that certain apostles did not have access to them. So we are seeing an unprecedented level of openness to the public. There's something called a limited hangout, and you can just Google limited hangout, and you can see that. And that's where people who have been hiding things give you enough stuff so that you stop looking and you can get the sense that you've found everything, but they still are keeping back certain things that are the most sensitive. And uh, we may be in the realm of that. There's always the question when you see something, you're like, why is that not public? Um, and the church still holds this concept that when things are confidential or sacred, there's like an acronym, an acronym that they use in the church history library of three different categories that they can use that will keep things restricted and redacted. And so there are still things that will be redacted, and time will tell you know at what point they're going to be released. For a long time, the William Clayton journals was one of these things where we didn't think they were ever going to come out. But about a year ago or so, the church announced that they will be scanning and digitizing them, so we'll have as much access to them as we have to um, any of the other material on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Um, Michael Markhart famously said, if they will publish the Council of 50 Minutes, then they can publish anything because it just completely exposes the threads of uh, treason and all the other things that Joseph was being accused of as being factual reality. So take that for what it's worth. Um, all right, let's see here. 
Katie Gibson asks, do most Mormons know what the second anointing is? I had never heard of it until I was an adult and on my way out the door. And I would say that certainly outside of Utah, most Mormons have no idea that this is something that exists. Uh, my own parents were both converts. I talked to my mom about it. She had no idea that such a thing exists. I think if you talk about uh, families with long priest, long genealogical connections to early church history, they probably know about it because they their ancestors may have received the second anointing, or they may be you know closely connected with current Mormon authorities who themselves have it. Um, certainly, if you want to, a good firsthand experience, there's now two resources that we have. We have the long-form interview um, that um, was released on the Mormon Stories podcast with a gentleman who himself received the second anointing. His name escapes me right now, but you can Google that and you'll find it. And we also have um, the general authority from Sweden, I believe, um, Hans and Birgitta Madsen, who published a book about their experience as general authorities in Sweden and leaving the church subsequent to that. And part of that was receiving the second anointing. And I believe they also did a series of interviews with John DeLynn. So you can find out more about that. Um, Certainly, if we saw some other religious uh, sect guaranteeing people who did special favors or held special place in their religious hierarchy, guaranteeing that they, no matter what they did, short of murder or denying the Holy Ghost, were guaranteed a spot in heaven, we would think that that's a dangerous precedent to set because it empowers people to do things that they would not otherwise do if they felt constrained by moral boundaries. But um, the argument goes that these are such good stalwart people, they would never even consider doing that anyway. All right, so uh, let's see here. Uh, it'll be easier to put your comment on the screen if it does not include profanity, because my my readership has gentle ears. Okay, Martin Dietrich Smith says, under the 1930s and 40s law, the law of chastity was different for women than for men. It is now the same for both. But RFM, you may remember that prior to 1990, women got up first to make the chastity covenant than men. That was a vestige from the time when, at least starting with Brigham Young, men covenant covenanted that they would have no sexual intercourse except with your wife or wives, which are given to you by the Lord through the holy priesthood. Nice, remember that they tell us women that uh, men are equal. And I think it got cut off right there. Uh, and I think that's, you're going to see the differences between what existed back then and what exists now. Certainly we've seen that even in the last year or so as the temple ceremony itself, the words of it changed. Um, and so it's always interesting to go back and try to figure out what exactly existed back then. And that's what's so fascinating about hearing God himself give Newell K. Whitney the verbiage of the marriage ceremony, because it is so removed from what we understand the marriage ceremony to be now. So God must have changed his mind about what those ceremonies were supposed to be. Anyway, all right, so let's see here. Um, <clears throat> All right, Forrest Noble says, working in the shadows in dark corners is how God does his work? Or was that another fallen angel's way of acting? And I think this is just pointing out the disparity between the notion that you shouldn't have to use deception and sham marriages and secret promises and preaching one thing to the public and teaching one thing in private that are diametrically opposed to each other. That shouldn't be the way that uh, God's truth works. And so if we discover that that is how the religious leaders at the foundation of the church have conducted themselves, it should be a huge red flag that there was something more than God's work going on. All right. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Matthew Allen saying the topic is the same as the November 15th revelation to punish kids for their gay parents. Um, we were discussing a little bit the Abrahamic test and how imposing something that seems contrary to conscience, to rationality, to empathy on the minds of followers as a test to see if they'll be obedient over their own reservations, over their own judgment, that that is something that in the Mormon church is completely acceptable for the church leaders to do. That is commonly raised as an excuse for why Joseph did things. It's commonly one of the things that Joseph used as a rationale. When he told Heber C. Kimball he wanted his wife Violet 
for his own to be sealed. He was essentially saying, I need you to let me become a polygamous, polyandrous husband of your wife. And, and Heber uh, really wrestled with that and struggled with it. And then later took his wife to Joseph, handed, gave her the hand and said, I'll do it, Joseph. He passed the Abrahamic test. And then Joseph said, it was just a test. But the thing is, Anytime any group is giving you an Abrahamic test, what they are doing is trying to see if you will betray your conscience, betray your normal moral paradigm in order to serve the idea that being obedient to them as an authority figure is a higher value than your own judgment, than your own conscience. It is a huge red flag. Anytime anyone claiming any religious or spiritual authority does that to you, you run as far away as possible because it is the poison in the well of that entire relationship. It exposes the manipulation for what it is. Um, All right, let's see here. Uh, Somebody else mentioned that they did not believe that the revelation given to Sarah Ann Whitney was actually from Joseph. I think that's the benefit of having it written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, is that we can know that that actually came from him because people who have studied every twist and turn of Joseph Smith's handwriting have a good handle on being able to identify the authentic product. Okay. Uh, Somebody else mentioned that it was Tom Phillips who was the individual who received the second anointing and subsequently went on to describe it, and that is true. You can uh, Google Tom Phillips and you see it. All right. Well, I think those are all of the uh, standout comments that we have here. Um, We will go ahead and close things down. I know this was a longer episode, but I wanted to get through the story uh, because it's so fascinating. And, and I think if you're engaged in discussion with somebody about the subject of polyandry, it's important to bring up this example because it's an example where Joseph definitely condoned polyandry in that you have a woman who is sealed slashed married to two men at the same time. And the only way to excuse it is say, well, she didn't have sex with her civil husband. And both of them agree that the marriage was fake, so it didn't count. But the problem is from the eyes of the law, civil law, that marriage did count and it was legitimate. Even if they secretly told themselves it was fake from the eyes of the law, it was a real marriage. And on top of that, you know, the the revelation on polygamy did not nullify that marriage because it happened after Joseph Smith's marriage to uh, Sarah Ann Whitney. And so it really stands out as one of these things that really blows apart the entire argument. You can't hold to those positions. Now, certainly if Brian Hales has a chance to listen to this and wants to respond, then I would certainly invite him to be able to appear here and to lay out his argument and to take calls from viewers, um, perhaps answer some questions in a cordial format. I don't expect that he'll do that. Uh, because his time is valuable and I don't know that he wants to devote it to this, but I would be very open to it. So if you are friends with him and I'd like to invite him to uh, listen to this presentation and respond either in written or um, participation format, then that's great. Um, We're going to have some more episodes here in the future where we take a look at his Saints Unscripted video and the different arguments that he makes there and see if any of them hold water. So until next time, This is Talk on Things and Stuff. Take care. So that is the end of part three of my discussion with Jonathan Streeter titled A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion I've had with Jonathan Streeter. I know I have had an absolute blast. I am a big fan of Jonathan Streeter and his podcast, Thoughts on Things and Stuff. If you want to hear more of what Jonathan Streeter has produced, and I encourage you to do so, please go to Thoughts on Things and Stuff and give it a listen. I know you won't be disappointed. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.